This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. If you don't want to listen to the story, go ahead and go get your gun, get your knife, get, get whatever you think you can use, and get your ass out on the street and try your best luck and see what you come up against. And you won't like it. It's May 3rd, 1971, in the Cass Corridor, a tough neighborhood in Detroit, Michigan. A white guy, looking down on his luck, shuffles along the sidewalk. I think I kind of acted like I was unfamiliar with Detroit or something. A young black man approaches. I never did see a gun or a knife or anything, but he made an impression out on my left side, which made me think he may have had a weapon, and he was getting my wallet out. This guy getting robbed? His name is Raymond Peterson, and it's his job to get robbed. Because Raymond Peterson is an undercover cop. Then he took off, and I began to fire my gun and hit him in the right shoulder. I knew, he, I, knew I hit him. The wounded man tries to run away, only to be caught by Peterson's partner. Peterson says the man then tries to grab his partner's gun. I knew I had one bullet left. I shot him again. And he was, mama, 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 blah, blah, blah. Fuck you, dear. This man's name was Dallas Collins, and he wouldn't be the last person shot by Raymond Peterson. I didn't ponder on any of it. That includes the last one I smoked. One, two, three, now! You're listening to Crime Town, produced in partnership with Gimlet Media. I'm Mark Smerling. Each season, we explore crime and corruption in a different city. For season two, we're heading to Detroit. And we'll be getting a little hosting help, so you'll be hearing some new voices. We'll take you from the streets of Dexter Linwood to the halls of power, and everywhere in between. But we're going to start back in the 70s with Raymond Peterson and the woman who made it her mission to bring him down. I don't half-step nothing. When I tell you I'm going to get you, (laughs) take it to the bank. I'm Drew Nellis. Welcome to Crime Town. This city teach you one thing for sure. You always need a hustle. If you don't, it's going to blow up in your fucking face. In a hundred places, Detroit is a fire. Here in Detroit, we have seen two worlds. One poor and black, one wealthy and white. We're bankrupt. The children's schools suck. There's no work here. And all the dudes that are responsible for this probably had steak in Bordeaux for lunch. 
What was River Rouge like back then when you were growing up? Well, it was racially divided. This is Mary Jarrett Jackson. She grew up in River Rouge, a segregated suburb of Detroit. I knew that I couldn't do certain things like be a part of the swim class. I became a cheerleader, but we couldn't ride on the bus like the white cheerleaders because we might contaminate the football players. The local movie theater was segregated too. Black people had to sit upstairs. Or at least, that's what the theater tried to tell Mary. I said, I'm not going upstairs today. So we went downstairs and they kept coming to ask us to go upstairs where blacks were supposed to sit. I said, I'm not going upstairs. You know, I just sat there. You, you, what you gonna do to me? If you hit me, I'm gonna hit you back. So after that, we didn't go upstairs anymore. How old were you? About 12. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I just wouldn't take it but so long. After high school, Mary went to Howard University. I wanted to be a a doctor, a pediatrician. I wanted to take care of children. But when it came time to apply for medical school, reality set in. This was the 50s. And for a young black woman, getting into medical school was almost impossible. I went back to talk to my counselor at Howard, and they said, well, you know, you could be a lab technician. Mary's father was a cop back home, and he told Mary that the Detroit Police Department needed technicians in their crime lab. When I went for an application for the crime lab, the two white officers behind the yeah. desk uh, just started laughing. He said they didn't have any blacks and they didn't have any women. And you fill both of those qualifications. They, they finally got themselves together enough to tell me, but even if you wanted to join, you have to become a policeman first. I took the application for the policeman, never thinking I'd ever fill it out. Never. But you did. But I did. My dad always said, you do whatever you have to do if it's something you want. He said, if the hurdle is there, you go over it, under it, round it, or through it. Whatever it takes. So that's how I did In 1958, Mary became one of Detroit's first black female police officers. She was a cop during the 67 riots. She lived through the beginnings of white flight and watched as the city fell into decline. By 1971, crime rates in Detroit were skyrocketing. So, the police commissioner put together a new undercover unit, known by the acronym STRESS, STRESS. In Detroit, police added a stress unit, men who act as decoys in high crime areas. Stress stands for Stop the Robberies, Enjoy Safe Streets. They're an undercover unit that could not be filmed. Since May, the stress unit has killed 10 people, nine of them black. 
shot as they tried to rob police decoys in the streets. Had you heard of the stress unit? Oh, yes. How, how did you first hear about it? Well, sometimes some of the stress officers would come up and be talking to the white officers in the lab. What, yeah. what would they say? How many niggers did you kill today? How did you feel when you heard that? Oh, not good. And there was one stress officer whose name Mary heard again and again. Nobody was killing black men like Peterson was. In my mind, I said, the next time I get anything from Ray Peterson of a shooting, I am going to see what I can do. Raymond Peterson, the undercover cop from the top of the show. He even had a nickname, Mr. Stress. Stress one, my car, my crew, the best in the fucking city. If that fucker pulled out a gun or a knife or anything else, you were the first one that was going to get any of it. Filmmaker David Van Wee spoke to Raymond Peterson for his documentary, Detroit Under Stress. We had the bad guys running scared, which is just where the fuck we wanted them. To lure criminals, stress officers used disguises. They dressed up like drunks, hippies, even little old ladies. As for Peterson, he would wander through the city's neighborhoods, looking lost, hoping to get robbed. But more and more, the people who tried to rob him ended up dead. According to the Detroit Free Press, by 1973, Peterson had been involved in eight fatal police shootings. All the shootings were of black men. And Peterson became notorious. He says that he and another stress officer started receiving death threats. The Black Panther Party called the department. They said they were going to follow Dick and I home for work and kill us on the way home. And then came March 9th, 1973, a night that would put Raymond Peterson on a collision course with lab technician Mary Jarrett Jackson. Just before dawn, Peterson says he asked his partner to follow him home after patrol. They drove west on the Fisher Freeway. All of a sudden, somebody runs into the right rear side of my car. I almost lost control. In the other car was Robert Hoyt, a 24-year-old black man. I'm fighting for control of the car, and this Robert Hoyt takes off with his pickup truck and starts to leave the scene. Peterson and his partner forced Hoyt's car onto an off-ramp. I heard a gunshot. I suppose that it was the Black Panther Party and they were on the warpath. I didn't know who fired what. The gun was actually fired by Peterson's partner. The bullet tore through Robert Hoyt's wrist. Hoyt bails out of his truck and starts toward me. I could not see his hand, his right hand. I plug him. I fucking killed him right just like that. He bounced off the truck and went down. They gave me uh, 
the report that Peterson made of the incident. Crime lab technician Mary Jarrett Jackson. And what was Peterson saying had happened with Mr. Hoyt? They were driving down the Fisher Freeway, and he kept cutting them off. And that's when this alleged assault occurred. And Peterson was saying that Hoyt came at him with the knife, right? I assaulted him with the knife, stabbed at him with the knife, and he shot and killed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this young man was going to work in his own car. So my, that could have been my boy. Mary had her doubts about Peterson's story, and she was determined to find out what really happened. When I got that knife, I got up, said, let me go home tonight. Let me just think this through. And the next day I went to talk it over with my dad. He said, well, you know what you have to do. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Crime lab technician Mary Jarrett Jackson had been assigned an important case. Stress officer Raymond Peterson had shot and killed Robert Hoyt during a traffic altercation. Peterson claimed that Hoyt had attacked him with a knife. So Mary took a look at the knife. Are you looking at it under a microscope? Under a microscope. I found five different colors of human hair, paint chips, and 43 different fibers. Mary wanted to see if what she found on the knife matched what she found in Robert Hoyt's jacket pockets. Mr. Hoyt was a a nibbler. He had peanut shells, salt granules, pretzel pieces, potato chips, particles, candy. The content of the the knife that Mr. Hoyt was alleged to have attacked Officer Peterson with didn't match the contents of the pockets of Mr. Hort's clothes. So Mary took a look at what was in Raymond Peterson's jacket pockets. Well, he had the unburned gunpowder, five different kinds of hair, 13 paint chips, 43 fibers. That was a wealth of information. Was it obvious that the materials on the knife matched some of the materials in Ray Peterson's pockets? Oh, yeah. Mary now knew that the knife was Peterson's. But she still needed to prove that the gunpowder, paint chips, and other materials found on the knife couldn't have come from someone else. So, she took another look through her microscope. I see animal hair that's unusual. I knew it was a cat hair. It was a brown, hair shades of brown and cream. Siamese cat, that's a fine hair. Common cat hair still would have been 
evident, but it wasn't as significant to me as a Siamese cat. It was so fine. Mary wanted to search Raymond Peterson's house. And that's when someone showed up in the crime lab. Someone Mary had actually never met before. Raymond Peterson. He knew we were getting a search warrant. And, um, and he came up there to argue with me. What exactly did he say to you? He said, well, I understand you're getting a search warrant to go in my house. What are you searching for? I said, um, I'm searching for anything in the house that I have found in your clothing or, or anything else that I can uh, connect you with this knife and the other trace evidence I found in your pocket. Uh, you know, he's just cursing and being profane. And the officers in the lab said, just get on out of here. white officers were calling me and they were threatening me. And what would they say? You better not find anything that will be associated with Raymond Peterson. And uh, I just hang up. Did you believe that your life was in danger? Oh, I did. Yeah, I did. I even feared for my children. But not all the cops in the Detroit Police Department were trying to protect Raymond Peterson. A detail of black officers would come and see me into the lab in the morning and then see me home in the evening, check my car for any bombs, and then see me home at night. A few weeks after the killing of Robert Hoyt, police cars pulled up to Raymond Peterson's house. I was in the car with an officer from the lab and a photographer. Miss Peterson came in, I guess she was Miss Peterson, a lady came out and a couple of the children. She was holding the door for them and the cat came out. Siamese cat. I don't like cats. I don't. I can't stand for them to be near me. But I was so happy to see this cat. I just wanted to hug him. I could kiss you. I know I don't like you, but I just could kiss you because you now tell me that what I said was true. Patrolman Raymond Peterson, accused of second-degree murder, is so charged because of the excellent work by some of his colleagues here in the scientific laboratory. The knife that Peterson says the civilian brandished at him was tested. Several cat hairs were found embedded in the knife. Cat hairs and other particles were found in Patrolman Peterson's coat pocket. Raymond Peterson was charged with murder. A lot of Detroiters thought that the problem was stress itself, but the police superintendent disagreed. This is an accusation against an officer who is off-duty. Uh, you don't uh, stop the police department because an officer is charged with a crime or 
I don't think it have any impact at all. Any more impact that uh, if an attorney was uh, accused of wrongdoing, would you suspend the legal profession? If a doctor was accused of wrongdoing, would you do away with doctors? Here's Raymond Peterson talking to a TV reporter at the time. Last week when we talked to you, you said you'd had a lot of support from the other fellows in stress. Could you elaborate? Well, you know, it's times like this when uh, you really find out who your friends are. And uh, the guys and the bosses from stress and uh, a few command officers that I value as my greatest friends have been with me through the whole thing, and I'm sure they'll continue to be. And I can't say how much I appreciate their assistance and help. I begged Ray Peterson to plead guilty. They offered him a manslaughter. I begged him. I said, yeah, got this is a tough case, Ray. God says he wouldn't do it. Says, this is Peterson's lawyer, Norman Lippitt. And now I've got a real problem. How am I going to beat a case where he, A, lied to the uh, Homicide Bureau in the first place, and B, he threw down the knife. I mean, it was clear and unequivocal. And the first thing I had to do was send him to a shrink, a psychiatrist. The doctor developed a theory that, that he lied because he was suffering from post-traumatic syndrome and that, that he had been involved in all these previous shootings, that uh, it had affected him somehow, some way. When pretrial hearings began, the star witness for the prosecution was Mary Jarrett Jackson. I knew that no matter what any attorney asked me, I would have an answer about the content of the knife. Listen, I worked at the thing three months. First of all, do a paint, a thin layer chromatography on the paint, 13. She testified on direct examination that she did the, her microscopic examination. She took the knife, put it under a microscope, and found the cat hair. Hairs, blood. Then it was Peterson's lawyer, Norman Lippitt's turn to question Mary. What's Lippitt going to do with Mary Jarrett? You know what I did? Sergeant Jarrett, how are you today? I'm fine, Mr. Lippitt, how are you? I said, I am just fine. Turned around and walked back to my chair and sat down. The judge looks at me, the prosecutor looks at me. What are you doing? I'm completed my examination, Your Honor. What was I going to say? What was I going to do? When you can't, when you can't win, you keep your mouth shut. I knew that I'd done it well. In his closing arguments, the prosecutor reminded the jury that Peterson had gunned down an unarmed man after a fender bender, then planted a knife on him to cover it up. Defense attorney Norman Lippitt told the jury all that was true, but it didn't matter. Because of Peterson's PTSD, as well as the threats to his life, the shooting was justifiable self-defense. The almost entirely white jury came back after just four hours. They tried me for second-degree murder, and the jury said not guilty. Mary Jarrett, she found in the well of the knife a fucking cat hair. I had two Siamese cats. I assumed he had a gun or a knife or something. What? Look, no fucking gun. No knife. No nothing. Uh-oh. 
Well, uh, I pulled out a knife and gave it to him. Even though he was acquitted, Peterson was fired from the police force. He stayed in the Detroit area and found work as a truck driver. There was a woman that lived in government apartments, we call them projects, kitty corner from us. She had a son and a daughter. She was probably maybe 10, 12 years old. We just began to get acquainted. It turns out the daughter had already heard about Mr. Stress. He said, my mother told me not to talk to you because you shoot black people. And I, it was kind of a shock coming from a kid. But I, I told her something like, well, I'm a policeman and I work in Detroit and there's a lot of bad people in Detroit. And I said, sometimes we have to shoot them. That's the story Raymond Peterson told himself about being a cop in Detroit. In his interview for Detroit Under Stress, he's 81 years old, bald and skeletal, chain-smoking. He would die eight months later. As for Mary Jarrett Jackson, she went on to become the first black female deputy police chief of any major department in the country. What do you think of stress today? I don't think it made the streets any safer. It took the lives of a lot of young men. It was just a time that they could murder somebody and get away with it. What's good about that? How did it make streets safer? Do you still think about him, Peterson? No. No, no, wouldn't waste my time. You think about people you love. I, I want to love everybody, but it's very hard for me to love Ray Peterson. But at least we got him off the street. I saved somebody's life. Some young black man that didn't even know he was going to be on the radar. Next time on Crime Town, after two teenagers are killed, public opposition to stress grows, and a new political voice makes a promise. Police department needs to be reorganized and made more responsive to the citizens. I'll eliminate stress as one of my first moves. The interview with Raymond Peterson in this episode appears courtesy of David Van Wee's documentary, Detroit Under Stress. To learn more about David's film and find out how to watch it, visit DetroitUnderStress.com. Crime Town is Mark Smerling and me, Zach Stewart-Pontier. This season is made in partnership with Gimlet Media and Spotify. It's produced by Soraya Shockley, John White, Rob Zipko, and Samantha Lee. 
The senior producer is Drew Nellis. Editing by Mark Smerling and me. Editing help from Alex Bloomberg, Caitlin Kenny, Emmanuel Barry, Danielle Elliott, and Austin Mitchell. Fact-checking by Jennifer Blackman. This episode was mixed, sound designed, and scored by Sam Baer. Original music this season composed by Homer Steinweiss. We recorded some original music at Rust Belt Studios in Detroit in partnership with Detroit Sound Conservancy. Special thanks to Carlton Goals and Maurice Piranahead Heard. Additional music by John Kusiak and additional mixing by Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Politicians in My Eyes by Death. Our credit music this week is I Won't Love You or Leave You, performed by Steve Mencha and David Ruffin, written and produced by Detroit Soul Ambassador Melvin Davis. Archival research by Brennan Reese. Archival footage courtesy of the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University. Show art and design by James Cabrera and Elise Harvin. We've got a great website with bonus content for each episode, like photos, videos, and newspaper clippings, as well as a full list of credits and a transcript. Check it out at crimetownshow.com. To learn more about stress, read Mark Benelli's piece, The Fire Last Time in the New Republic. Thanks to the Detroit Free Press, Peter Batia, Jim Schaefer, Mary Schrader, Mary Wallace, the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History, Melissa Sampson, the Detroit Historical Society, Sheila Cockrell, Aaron Hennigan, Caitlin Roberts, Heather Ann Thompson, Courtney Brown Jr., Charlie LaDuff, Mike McKay, and everyone who shared their stories with us. Detroit is an amazing place, and we're honored to tell a small part of its story. Alex Bloomberg is the podfather. He doesn't half-step nothing. If he tells you he's going to get you, take it to the bank. Do you remember Coleman's nickname for you? I I don't know that he had a nickname. I I read in the paper that he called you Catwoman. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I didn't remember that. Yeah, he was talking to somebody about the case. About the Peterson case. Yeah. And they said he called me Catwoman. I said, I don't like cats. I don't know why he did that.